This morning, uh, in our series, we're looking at the last of three practical studies that we've, that we've decided to, to put in here just to, as we develop this biblical theology, this understanding of God from beginning to end, a perspective of the Alpha and Omega, um, we want to make sure, I want to make sure that we're not losing sight of just how practical, how relevant, necessary, helpful it is to understand these things. And so, so we've been doing this for the last couple of weeks. Next week, we're actually going to move into Advent and put the whole thing on pause uh, as we prepare for Christmas. There'll be more come out this week about that. But um, anyway, that's, that's what the plan. Uh, but just, just to put these things together, because these three sermons, is, it, although they could stand alone, there's a way in which they are woven together. They're, they're dependent upon one another. They build off of one another. The first one is, who am I? As we looked at our identity, who we are as people, like the very core of our identity, we typically start with all the superfluous, or, or not superfluous, but all, the, all these things that, that are exterior to us to try to define us, and, and we almost do it backwards, where, where God's identity as image bearers is the, is the source. And, and then through Adam, we gain this sinful identity, this sinful nature, and then through Christ, uh, we gain again this image, um, this identity. And so the point of that sermon was only the glorious image of the eternal God restored through our union with his son, Jesus Christ, is substantial enough to define who I am. Everything else is going to fall flat and it's going to leave me dissatisfied, it'll leave me wanting, leave me sad, leave me depressed. And, and uh, starting with who we are in Christ is the only source of joy. And that happens to be the... the topic or the focus of the next week's sermon designed for joy. This is all part of God's design. Our identity being part of that design was intended to be a joyous thing for us, not a thing that brought heart, heartache and hurt. There, so, so the point for that week was by God's design, we were created to live joy-filled lives in a joy-filled world. Now, though corrupted by sin, our joy is restored in our union with Jesus Christ. So, so not mutually exclusive ideas. They're, they're woven together our identity being part of God's design was intended for joy as everything else in creation was intended that we would enjoy it as we know the good, glorious, great, uh, and gracious God. But now, living out of that identity as God's image bearers is only possible in Christ. Living in that design as, as, um, and, and experiencing the joy that comes from that is only possible through Christ. And so now, as Christians... These are not just theoretical concepts that we gather together and talk about on a Sunday and, and then go on about our life and try to put our life into place however we want to. These are practical, relevant, drawing on this truth every day of our life. It, it enables us to live this life so that, so that as we do, we know who we are and we can enjoy the things of this life because we know that as hard as it gets sometimes, as difficult as it can be sometimes, there are greater things at work. God is still working. He is still God. Now, another component, and this is really going to connect to these other two as well, another component, this third component that we're adding today, that these passages that we've been studying in Genesis 1 through 3 really detail for us and really encourage us to consider is God's sovereignty and mankind's responsibility. God's sovereignty and mankind's responsibility. Now, in my experience... It's just anecdotal. It's just my experience. In my experience, we typically have this conversation around God's sovereignty, mankind's responsibility in theoretical doctrinal camps, and they never, we never really seek to bring them to a place where they actually are meaningful for our life. They do matter. These two concepts, these two truths 
that run through the whole of Scripture that we find starting in, in these passages in Genesis chapter 1 through 3, they are absolutely, they are, found, they, they are important and foundational theological concepts. But they have impact, they have relevance for every day uh, of our lives. Recognizing them and living in light of them enable us, empower us to, to better understand how to live in this world. And I want you to see that. So, so that's what we're studying today. Genesis chapter 1 is where we're going to start, verse 26 through 29, verses that I hope by now are very familiar to you, um, but that still have something to say to us. So let's read the word, we'll pray, and then we'll dig in. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man, created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. Let's pray. Father, help us now. Um, just as we begin to, to build this out and understand the relationship between your sovereignty and our responsibility, but also as we work to the place to see how it means something as we sit here in this room and as we get up and go out of this room and as, as we make decisions tomorrow about going to work and doing our stuff or raising our kids or loving our wives and our husbands and all the things that we have in front of us, living in a broken, sinful world, in a, in a, in a place that loves everything but you. These things matter. So help us learn and help us live in light of them, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. So it's clear God's sovereignty from the very beginning is clear. I don't, I don't, I, I, in fact, I think there would be very few people that would question it from, from, from these chapters, right? God says, let there be light. What does light do? Ah, it, it, it shines. Light shines. It can't help but shine. He tells the, he divides the waters above, waters below. God sovereignly acts. He's not asking for permission. He's not looking for, to some other authority. He's not seeking advice. He's designing a world according to his plan, his sovereign intention, his sovereign purposes, his sovereign will. God is sovereign. And as the scriptures unfold, that truth continues to be told. Every page of scripture, I, I, I believe, it's, I believe it's, it's, it's absolutely true, and I've, I've not tested it. I, I would encourage you to test it as you study and read Every page of scripture, you will see God's sovereignty in front of you. God is great. And there is no undermining that greatness. There is no overriding that greatness. God is great. His sovereign rule is on every page of the scripture. Every, every event, every story, every, every circumstance, every narrative, every poem, every, um, all the genres, right? Every ounce of the scripture is telling us of the greatness of God. Well, how does that fit against the responsibility of man? And the question or the debate really comes into clear focus when we begin to set God's sovereignty against man's response, mankind's responsibility, especially when we're talking about things like salvation. 
Does God save man or does man go to God and get saved? What, what, so, so, so in terms of the doctrinal discussion and in the, the theological concepts, that the, 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 the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man are at the heart of the debate between Calvinism and Arminianism. Arminianism. Calvinists would suggest and, and focus and, and, and emphasize the sovereignty of God. God must work. Arminians would emphasize that man is responsible to choose. Man is responsible to, to, to respond to God, to go to God. Now, I, I'm just, I, I think you all know this, but I don't want there to be secrets. I don't want there to be misunderstandings. I am Calvinistic in terms of salvation. I don't believe everything that Calvin wrote is true. I don't think it's biblical. I think he's just like every other man. He's shaping, uh, for example, Calvin would emphasize, in fact, he'd call you an idiot if you didn't baptize your babies. I don't think that's the right stance. Biblically, I think it can be demonstrated that it's not the right thing to do, that we baptize in light of faith and salvation. Um, so I'm not Calvinist in the sense of everything he taught, but in terms of salvation, I have a Calvinist perspective. But to my Calvinist friends, which I know there are many in this room, I hope you're my friends anyway. I know there's many Calvinists in the room, but I hope you're my friends. I would say, don't be more Calvinistic than the scripture is Calvinistic. Right? Because I can demonstrate to you there are plenty of passages that demonstrate the responsibility of man before God to go to God and choose to follow and trust and believe or, or, or repent. I can demonstrate that to you in, in, in many, many passages that God is, mankind is responsible before God. But to my Arminian friends, and I think there's many of you in this room, again, I would ask, I hope we're friends, I would say don't be less Calvinistic than the scripture is also, because I can demonstrate to you many passages that have nothing to do with what man is responsible to do, but show you what God has done. Both of these things are on every page, or, 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 as we talk about salvation, I would suggest that these are two truths of the same, same broad teaching in some way, rather than pit them against one another, we ought to recognize how they actually complement and work together. This is why so many theologians have, have sought to do that. So I think it was Spurgeon I first heard deal with this and, and, and talk about this, and he is Calvinistic in his understanding of salvation, uh, a staunch defender of the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession, um, he, he is a, a particular Baptist from England, uh, but, but he talked about God's sovereignty and mankind's responsibility as two truths that are parallel lines that run alongside one another. And kind of as you see into the, into the distance, you recognize there, there's the understanding that they're coming close together. The, the, the perspective is real. They're coming close together. And just because we can't see them actually connect doesn't mean they don't connect, but they must in eternity and, and God's eternal perspective must connect because they're both true. And they don't contradict one another. They complement one another. They're parallel lines that support the same idea. Others have come along behind him and talked about the, these two parallel truths as train tracks that are both necessary to support the train to go down the tracks. But as you look down the tracks, you see, as, as the vision does, you know, it looks like the, the lines converge. And, and we know they do because they're both truths from the same God in the same scripture. And so they're not intended to contradict one another. They're not meant to be pitted against one another. They complement one another. 
And, and I appreciate that. I appreciate that. But, but, but the reality is, 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 is that they, that doesn't answer all of our questions, right? Like, so, 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 so questions that we ask on a regular, daily basis. If God is sovereign, why pray? Like, if he knows what I need, if he's omniscient, omnipotent, uh, uh, ever-present, omniscient, omniscient, omnipotent, what's the other one? Omnipresent? I don't know. Anyway, gosh, my mind sometimes it just, how, how in the world does God use a guy like me? He's sovereign. That's how he does it. Oh, I pray. If God knows all, is every place all the time, and he already knows what's coming, why should I have to pray? Why, what, why is prayer necessary? How about another view, another idea? Evangelism. Why evangelize? If God's sovereign and saving people, why bother with evangelism? Why, why, why should I put myself at risk of losing relationship? If God's going to get all his people, why evangelize? Or, or, or how about when the bottom falls out? Like life is going along and everything's fine and suddenly tragedy occurs and the bottom falls out. If God is sovereign over all the things that are happening, why isn't he doing something about it? Extension of this one is, is if he's sovereign and allowing all this evil to take place and I'm being held accountable for my part of that evil, why in the world would I want anything to do with that God? Why would I want any part of his stuff? Right? Like these are, these are real questions. They're real, real struggles that people have. And, and, and here's the reality. What I, what I think would be more helpful than just considering these two things as, as parallel lines is to recognize that they're not just parallel lines, but sometimes they're, 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 they're really, or what they really are, is part of the warp and woof of a beautiful tapestry. That sometimes these two threads of different colors run parallel to one another, and sometimes they're woven together to demonstrate that there's a beautiful picture, an ornate image that God has created and put on display for his glory and our joy. You see, it's, it's not just that these are parallel lines. This is all part of what God has been doing in designing this world. In the beginning, that's the main point that we're going to, well, one of the main points we're going to build out today. In the beginning, God's sovereignty established mankind's responsibility to live in right relationship with him. So these two truths, God's sovereignty and, and mankind's responsibility, they are not in competition with each other in the way that we, we make them compete. Why am I responsible to pray if God is sovereign? Why am I responsible to evangelize if God is sovereign? Why am I responsible to be good if God is just going just gonna to let all kind of evil things happen? Why does it even matter? Why is it, why is it a thing? In those questions, we tend to pit these ideas against one another. In theological conversations, we tend to pit these things against one another because we focus on one more than the other. I would suggest that what God is really about doing is in sovereignty creating a man who's completely responsible. And he did it. We can see it right here in this passage that we just read. And it's part of this ornate tapestry, these, these two threads of different colors that are woven together that give us this beautiful image of a design that's beyond us and beyond our ability to comprehend fully and to come up with in our own imagination. But God is God, and he sovereignly established mankind's responsibility at creation. It's part of his design. By design, by design, we are responsible as people, mankind, as people, to represent the Lord. From the moment of creation, the very first, the very first words about mankind in this book, of, in, in all of the Bible, 
is God stopping in the midst of day six and saying something and saying it reading differently. And he says, let us make man in our image. That's after our own likeness. The idea is that we are responsible for the very design that God put in place, that we are responsible to reflect him on the earth. The whole physical realm should be able to see the greatness of God as it's reflected from man. The whole physical realm should be able to see the glory of God as it's reflected off of man. What's interesting to me is that as the Bible unfolds, we see sin happen, and we turn to the Psalms, and we see the Psalms tell us that that the heavens declare the glory of God. That should be the thing written about mankind. Is that the the very fact that we exist on the earth We should be filling the earth with the image of God, with his greatness, his glory, his goodness, and his grace. By design, from the moment we were first conceived, we were made responsible to represent the Lord in this way. To fill the physical world with this physical image of a God who's spirit. By design, we're responsible to do that. Don't forget... As I emphasize these things, this design is intended for our joy. We aren't lacking joy because we were made responsible for this. We're lacking joy because we're not imaging God. So don't don't misunderstand that that's what's happening. By design, we are responsible to represent the Lord. By design, we're responsible to obey the Lord. He He didn't even get into the act of it. He didn't stop and have that, that, so God created man in his own image. Verse 26, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. God's already got a purpose in mind. He's got, a, he's got an idea. This is why I'm creating them to be my representatives so that they can exercise my authority under my authority. And then what's he do? He commands them. He gives them a command. Rule and subdue. Exercise authority in the same way that I'm exercising authority. As my representatives, obey me. Do this thing. By design, we are responsible to obey the Lord. God has given commands. He has always he's been the one in authority giving commands, determining what's right, what's wrong. Commands to obey in doing and commands to obey in not doing. Right? Like that's the idea. He says, do this, we do it. We're responsible to do it. He says, don't do it, we're responsible not to do it. That is woven into the very fabric of creation. This isn't a theological concept that that developed when when Augustine started reading the scripture and decided that, that, that God was sovereign in salvation or affirmed the teaching of the church at that time. It's not a theological concept that that developed when the reformers came along and Calvin said, hey, we've kind of lost sight of this. This is woven into the very design and the, the, the fabric of the tapestry of God's creation. We are responsible to represent the Lord, to obey the Lord. We are responsible to depend on the Lord. This, I think this is one we struggle with. In, in, in fact, the, the last one I think we struggle with as well. In fact, I think the reason that many people don't want to, to think of God as creator, they'd like to rid themselves of the creation narrative altogether, and God didn't create this, and is because with, with the idea that we 
in some way he's sovereign over us and he's our creator, that, that, that just inherently breeds the idea that we're responsible to him, responsible for him, and should obey him. But I think we struggle with this, this one as well because we prize our autonomy. We prize our independence. We long to be independent. In fact, especially in the culture that we live in today, we think autonomy and independence is the end-all, be-all of freedom. Right? We're, we're looking to live free, and what we often mean by that is free of a God at all, and I get to do whatever I want to do, and nobody else, who are you to tell me, I can't. That's not freedom. In fact, we'll never be free from that reality. We're always going to be under authority. Always under authority. But by design, we were responsible, made responsible, created by this design to depend on the Lord. For things like daily food. What would the woman and man that first were created eat had God not said, Hey, by the way, I've given this to you. I mean, well, they, they, they might as well have been eating grass. I, we don't know what would have happened, but God had a plan for them and said, I'm going to give you food to eat. He, they're dependent upon him for their daily provisions, such as food. Even in the fulfilling of commands that he'd given them. We're going to see this a bit clearer in chapter 4, but, but when he says to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, they recognize he means have a bunch of babies, right? And those babies have bunches of babies, and those babies have bunches of babies. Fill the earth, right? They understand that. But they also understand they're not doing that on their own. They're not scientifically advanced. They don't fully understand how, how, how fertilization and, and fetus, uh, fetuses develop. They don't, they don't get that. They don't understand the division of cells and all that. They don't understand any of that. What they do know is that they can participate, but they're still dependent upon the Lord. You're going to see that really clearly in, in, in Genesis 4 in just a moment. They knew that to obey God, they were going to need God to enable them to obey God. They were dependent as part of the design. And they were responsible to depend on him for food and for these commands being, uh, being fulfilled. And we see that played out as he brings judgment and curses in Genesis 3. When he speaks to the woman and he tells her that you're going to have pain and trouble in childbearing and toil in childbearing, the reality is, is that it becomes painfully clear that suddenly God is sovereign over that reproductive process. And she is going to feel that the rest of her life. And everyone who follows after is going to feel that the rest of all of their lives. When he speaks to the man, hey, by the way, that food that you were going to be producing in the world as you ruled and subdued the earth, guess who's still sovereign over that? Thorns and thistles you're going to get. By the sweat of your brow, you're going to be baking bread. Who's sovereign over that? They're, they're, they're absolutely dependent. By design, God's sovereignty is... is is, is demonstrating that, that they were always responsible to depend on the Lord. By design, we're responsible also to trust the Lord. In chapter 3, when the serpent tempts Eve, it, it's, it's not clear. If you read that passage again, it's not super clear in the first passage. In chapter 2, it's not super clear that this expectation of trust is there. But when we get to chapter 3, and she begins to hear the temptation of the serpent. She starts to listen to that serpent. It's clear that trust is expected. But who does she trust instead of the Lord? The serpent and her own idea, right? So if you go to that passage, you're going to see she's going to, she's going to hear the serpent. She's going to look at the food and she's going to trust the serpent. Well, this is make me like God. The food looks good. It's, it's desirable, 
right? I, I want that, and it's good for making me wise. Like, I want more wisdom. Why wouldn't I want more wisdom? Because she's trusting the Lord. She's, trust, or she's trusting the serpent. She's trusting herself. She's not trusting the Lord and his commands. You're not really going to die. You're going to become like God. So we see that implicit in chapters 1 and 2 is an expectation of trust. I'm telling you the truth, essentially, is what God's saying. I'm trustworthy. You're responsible to trust me. And we only, it only gets tested when somebody with a different voice comes in and starts saying a different message. But suddenly it's on the line. Who am I going to trust? Who am I responsible to trust? And suddenly we see it. They were responsible to trust the Lord. And they didn't. They trusted others. They trusted self. By design, we are responsible also to commune with the Lord. In chapter 3, we learned that God would, they, they heard God in the garden. It seems to be that presented that in such a way that this was a common occurrence, that they heard God, and when they heard God, what did they do? They hide. In chapter 2, when you study through chapter 2, and we did this a couple, I think it was last week, when we saw that chapter 2 demonstrates that the garden was intended to be a, a sanctuary where, where God dwelt with man and man dwelt with God. God knew man and man knew God and, and had this union or this intimate relationship. And, and, and the reality is, is that was the whole intention. As he creates, he, he's got this sovereign idea, he's got this sovereign plan, and he builds this garden in which he puts mankind, and they are responsible in that garden to commune with him. But after eating the fruit, what did they do? Rather than commune, they hid. That's where we see this responsibility break down. Instead of living up to the responsibility, instead of living according to the, to the sovereign design, this man and this woman dropped the ball on responsibility and did their own thing. They didn't live responsibly. And we see it. Immediately they eat the fruit and the first thing they recognize is we're naked and suddenly they feel shame. They, 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 they suddenly they, they hear God and rather than run to God and seek his help and seek his provision and seek the, the, to be dependent upon him and seek to, to return to obedience to him, they hide from him. And what does God rightly do? He sovereignly judges. He sovereignly exiles. God stays sovereign. Man stays responsible. Let's see that play out. It's going to play out. All right, so Genesis chapter 4. Flip over there and, and follow along. We're going to begin in verse 1, read through verse 15. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. I didn't get this with Adam. I got it with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel, a keeper of sheep, Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, uh, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Can you, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's, your, where's Abel, your brother? 
He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any found him and should attack him. And then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod. Our sinful rebellion, this, 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 the, the point I would like to draw out of this, our sinful rebellion doesn't diminish God's sovereignty to our responsibility to the sovereign God. God's sovereignty isn't diminished by our sinfulness. And our responsibility to God as sovereign God is not diminished by our sinfulness. In sin, we remain responsible to represent the Lord. Now, Adam and Eve, they don't cease to bear God's image, and nor do their children. And we didn't read it this week, but we read it a couple weeks ago. Genesis 5 kind of lays that out, that God created man. He made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And then Adam's image is passed on, whereas Adam's image, had it not been a sinful image, wouldn't have been a big problem. But now Adam is, here's the image of God through Adam, and now Adam passes down this broken, marred, sinful image. And so, so we still maintain God's image, we still bear God's image, still meant to and responsible to reflect and represent God, but we don't. That becomes even more clear as, as, as we turn to Genesis chapter 6, and, and God speaks to Noah, and Noah comes out of the ark, and and, and God says to him, you know, if, if an animal or even if, if a person or even an animal takes a man's life, their life should be taken because God or because man bears God's image. Uh, so, so as a result, if you kill somebody, your life is supposed to be taken because the value of life is based on the image of God in every person. So, so there's this understanding, right? We still are responsible to represent the Lord, not just by our very being, but in our living. It's the whole intent. That's the whole idea. But we don't. This is true of everyone. Absolutely everyone is responsible to reflect and represent God because we all bear his image. And no one ever lives up to that image. That's why Paul wrote, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Neither do we worship him or reflect his glory in this world. In sin, we remain responsible to represent the Lord. In sin, we remain responsible to obey the Lord. Adam and Eve, even, even, even though they had fallen in sin and God had exiled them out, what did they do? They know each other. Parents, look at me. They know each other, right? Like trying to be polite. They, know, that, that, they seek to have kids. They do the very thing God intended them to do. He commanded them to do. Go, be fruitful, multiply. And in their kids, we see them ruling and subduing as God had commanded. Cain, what's he doing? He's, he's working the ground. He's, he's getting fruit out of it. He's making it produce food for them. And Abel, is, he's working with animals and, and tending to the flocks and, and, um, and watching over, over herds. He's a herdsman of some sort, a shepherd of some sort. They're responding to and living in light of the truth that God or the commands that God had given them. They remain responsible. In sin, we remain responsible to obey the Lord. And they continue to live that way. They seek to live that way. 
obviously not perfectly. We see this play out a little bit more as Cain comes to uh, interact with God. He's jealous of his brother. He sees Abel doing something that he becomes jealous of, angry about. And, And look at what God says to him. Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, if you obey, will you not be accepted? I mean, that's the same way that essentially what he's saying. If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do the right thing, if you approach me in the way that I would suggest, I tell you that you're supposed to approach me, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, it's desires for you, but you must rule over it. God is telling Cain, you're a sinner. And because you're a sinner, you're, you're sinning. But you have a responsibility, Cain. Don't let sin rule over you. You rule over it. Every person, though they are fallen, is still responsible to live in obedience to God. Every person. So whether they accept the Bible as truth or not, whether they look to the Ten Commandments as authoritative or not, whether they would listen to the commands of the New Testament or not, they are still responsible to obey God. They are still responsible for their own sin and rebellion against God. This happens over and over. We're all responsible for it. In sin, we remain responsible to depend on the Lord. Eve makes it clear here. And I called it out. I, by the help of the Lord, have a son. Later, when she has Seth... She's going to be amazed again. They're going to be amazed that here's this this son. So so look at chapter 5. I I don't think I called this out before. Or not chapter 5. At the end of chapter 4. Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and called him Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me. Again, recognize this isn't just them knowing each other. That's the fruit of this. God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. So, so she's recognizing fully that though they're participants in the process, God is sovereign over the process. They need God to act. They, they must depend upon God to act to make their work fruitful. In the same way, when God, when God has cursed the, cursed the ground because of man's sin and, and, and he's still going to let him eat, mankind's still dependent upon God, well, then he curses Cain directly, did to Cain what he didn't do to his parents, and he curses him. And says, now you're going, you're going to get nothing. You, you, you're a cut off from me. You are cut off from the world that's been created. Cain still tries to go and live whatever meager existence he can. But he recognizes the weight of his punishment, the weight of the curse. In, in sin, we remain responsible to depend on the Lord. And even, th- this continues, one, one example that comes to mind from the New Testament. Is Jesus, talking with his apostles, sees the multitudes and tells his apostles... Don't send them home to eat. You feed them. How in the world are we going to do that? There's not enough food in, in this whole area to feed this crowd. He, he, he's always repeatedly through the scriptures calling us to do things that we're absolutely needy of him to accomplish through us. We're absolutely dependent and, and need him to act sovereignly so that our responsibility actually bears any fruit. We are responsible to depend on the Lord, even as sinful people. This is true of every person who has ever lived, who are ever, ever will live. 
We are created to live dependent upon his sovereignty. We are responsible, therefore, to do that very thing. But most every person that's born seeks to live apart from him. Even cursed Cain knew how desperate a situation that was. In the receiving of his curse, he understood the weight of what God had done. You think about it. He had just killed his brother. And he understands what God did in placing the curse directly on him. I won't last. Someone's going to kill me. What in the world? I, I, I am without hope. Because we are dependent on the Lord. Even in sin, we remain responsible to depend on the Lord. In sin, we remain responsible to trust the Lord. Now, here's this interesting thing. So, so they're exiled. They're sent out. There's no way back for them into Eden to eat the tree of life. But the very first thing that's happening outside of this is, Adam and Eve have many kids, and those kids seek to have a relationship with God. Now, we don't know any of the teaching that leads to this. We don't know in any way what their understanding was, how present God was, how vocal he was, how, how clear it was that he was. We don't have any idea. All of it would be conjecture. But what we do know is that they sought to have a relationship with the Lord. Cain brings his, his offering. Abel brings his offering. And there's something interesting about this, distinct about them. Cain brings fruit from his, from, from his produce. Abel brings a firstborn. The very first of any of his offspring he brings to God. Now, the book of Hebrews tells us that the reason that that's acceptable is because Abel's actions proved his faith in God. Cain's just bringing out of his excess. It's just some stuff I want to bring to God. And his is rejected. Abel's is received by faith. Hebrews 11, you can go read it. It tells, tells you explicitly there. That though, that though, though it, it's not the fruit or the produce. It's not that it was a plant and, and Abel's had blood in it. It was that the, the, the intent behind it the purpose behind it, the, the activity of the giving was motivated by faith in Abel and whatever, something else in Cain. So here they go, they go, and God accepts the one who trusts because we're responsible to trust him, and he rejects the one who doesn't come in faith. In fact, that's another thing that Hebrews 11 tells us, every person is responsible to come to God in faith. You can't please God without faith. We are responsible, everyone who has ever lived is responsible to express their faith, their trust in God. Not only do we not depend on him, but we're seeking to reject him, not grow in faith in him. Every person is held to this. Every person by design remains responsible even in sin to express their faith in God. In sin, we remain responsible to commune with the Lord. Again, don't know why. We don't know what motivated. We don't know what surrounding it. But they continue to seek to live in this relationship. Every one of us were created by a sovereign God and are responsible to live in a right relationship with him. We are responsible. We, we remain responsible to do so. Now, this is a little easier for Christians to hear because we recognize there's something on the other side of this. But for every non-Christian that could be potentially sitting in this room, for every non-Christian that could be 
could eventually at some point listen to some recording or watch some video, you need to hear this. Because just because you think that you, do, you don't have all the right set of circumstances and all the right set of stuff, by design, this is, this is the way God created it. He is sovereign. And mankind is responsible. And our sin does not give us an excuse to not live up to our responsibility. Our sin nature does not give us an excuse to not live up to our sin nature. Every person who has ever been, is right now, or ever will be, will answer to the Alpha and Omega. They will one day stand before God and he will rightly, sovereignly, Hold them to account. And if you don't know him, and if you have not come to him through Jesus Christ, he will place that final full curse on you. So please don't hear this as a fear tactic. or This is just the truth. Every person that exists is responsible to God by his sovereign design, even in spite of our sin. There is no excuse he doesn't give one. But thankfully, that's not the end of the story. Our sinfulness doesn't diminish God's sovereignty or our responsibility to the sovereign God. Our sinfulness, our sinfulness underscores our need for God's sovereignty to enable us to live responsibly. We need God more than ever. More than ever, we need God. To exercise his sovereignty to enable us to live responsibly. In Christ, we can live responsibly as representatives of the Lord. I, I, I love Romans for this. In the beginning of Romans 1, he shows us that no excuse, our sin has condemned us, and God rightly is, is condemning, his wrath is justified, it's all there. It, it's, it's, it's right, it's, it's the good thing, it's the right thing. He shows us in Romans 3, we've all sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. And then he comes to Romans chapter 8, verses 29, I think is the verse, where he talks about that those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Through Christ, he's actually enabling us to reflect him again in a way that's honorable and gives glory to him and purposefully, intentionally demonstrates his greatness and his goodness. In Romans 12, he then writes further, Paul writes further about how the, the, those people who are being conformed to the image of Christ are to act and are to live. Jesus does this himself. He speaks of it in John chapter 6 where he says that only those who the Father draws can come. We need God to sovereignly act in order for us to come to him so that we can be, 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 be reflecting this image again. Everyone is responsible, but God sovereignly draws those that are now actually able to live responsibly before him. You can read all about that. John 6, 22 through 49. We could summarize Jesus' teaching to those followers of his that, that he laid this responsibility on. Love as you have been loved. Serve as you have been served. You remember the night that he's up in the upper room and he wraps a towel around his waist and he bows down and he washes feet of all things. He says, serve like you've been served. Go and do likewise. Forgive as we've been forgiven. Bless as we've been blessed. This is the call. This is the, idea. the idea of these commands is not for us to go and do these things to show our goodness, but to reflect the image of Christ who has come and done them for us. We don't forgive simply because we've been forgiven and, and show and prove our goodness. We forgive as we've been forgiven to demonstrate the glory and grace of God. We love as we've been loved, even our enemies. Because once we were an enemy, we love as we've been loved, not to show our goodness, but to reflect the glory and grace of our God. 
If we're not doing these things, it's, something's off. It's a sin. It's broken. We are responsible to reflect the glory of God. And so we love as we've been loved, serve as we've been served, forgive as we've been forgiven, bless as we've been blessed. And further, God is doing this, not just for us, but for his glory. Uh, uh, Ephesians 1 through 3 would demonstrate this, but let me just share a passage with you. Paul, recognizing himself, he's a prisoner for this thing. He's, he's suffered as a result of his going into the world and preaching Christ. He comes to this place where he writes in Ephesians 3, 8 through 11. To me, though I'm the very least of these saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ. The way he's been blessed, he's going out and blessing. The way he's been loved, he's going out and loving. The way he's been forgiven, he's going out and forgiving. The way he's been graced, he's going out and gracing, right? And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan for the mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. His purpose is to conform his people to the image of Christ. But why does he conform us back to the image of Christ so that we can reflect his glory? So that through to the, all the heavenly realms, he can demonstrate his manifold wisdom so that God would be glorified. This was according to the eternal purposes that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. The, the point I hope you see, the point I want you to get, we have been acted on sovereignly by God. And we are being conformed to this image of Christ sovereignly by God. And now we are responsible to live like it. In the light of that, God continues to work sovereignly through us. To make himself known and to accomplish his own purposes. God sovereignly made us responsible. Not so we could live separately or independently from him. But so that he could accomplish his will in a world in which he created. He didn't make you responsible so you can go get your own way. He made you responsible so his sovereign work would be done. It's not about us. It is all about him. So Christian, get busy reflecting his image. Quit trying to make a name for yourself in this world. Make a name for God. Make a name for his son, Jesus Christ. In Christ, we, live respons we can live responsibly in obedience to the Lord. Jesus said this himself, John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So if we're loving like we've been loved, we're loving Jesus in the same way. It is the natural expression of that love to keep his commandments. John wrote about this again in his first letter to the church. We are responsible to obey. We are responsible to obey God. We don't get to just live as Christians. Now, oh, you know, grace abounds. I'll sin more, grace more. Come, come on, give me more. I, I need more grace, God, so I'll sin a little bit so you give me more grace. No. The, the, the New Testament. I'll just, I'll just work from there because it's clear that every New Testament command applies to a New Testament Christian. We don't have to debate any of that. The New Testament is filled with commands for Christians to obey. He did not save us so we could go, on our, go our own way and do our own thing. He saved us, and in so doing, he enabled us to live responsibly in obedience to him. He's given you a new life, so live like it. Remember I said last week, the dead are dying and they keep doing it. He made you alive, so start living like you're alive. You actually have an ability to begin living. Part of that living is obedience. 
Let's, let's talk about prayer. You know, that question, why pray? Well, first and foremost, obedience. When Jesus, when, when, when Jesus said and was teaching his apostles to pray, he didn't say, if you pray, you know, it might be a good idea to pray. He said, when you pray. He's expecting it of his people to pray. So I, I, don't, I don't even feel bad about saying it this way. It may feel a little direct. I don't care if you like prayer or not. You're disobeying if you don't pray. Is that a reason enough for you to pray? He's made you responsible to do so. So do it. Evangelism. He didn't say, hey, after I'm gone, I want you to think about, make a plan for, figure out how to, if you get around to it. You know, if things are easy enough at home, if you don't have to figure out how to manage and balance kids, wife, ministry, he didn't give any caveats. He said, make disciples as you go, which really translates to everywhere you are, be about making disciples. So when you're at home, make disciples. When you're at work, make disciples. When you're in the store, when you're at the restaurant, when you're in this neighborhood, when you're sitting in this building, when you're coming to church, when you're, when you're going out to the world, make disciples. Hey, and if you don't like, you know, I mean, come on, that's somebody else's job. That's disobedience. Well, God's sovereign. It's disobedience. Just do it. We are responsible to this. In Christ, we have been given the ability to live responsibly in obedience to the Lord. God's sovereignty doesn't take away responsibility. It doesn't take away the need for obedience. And remember, God is not about, he's not about just doing for you what you want done. He's about doing through you what he intends to be done. He made you responsible so he could accomplish his sovereign will, not yours. He made you responsible, not sovereign. You get the distinction. In Christ, we can live responsibly in obedience to the Lord. In Christ, we can live responsibly in dependence on the Lord. Now, I know I'm speaking kind of strongly, but I'm speaking to Christians who I'm not asking you to live up to a law. I'm not asking you to become something you're not. I'm asking you to live the way God's called you to. And in one way, in in this way, he has called us to live independence on him. So Jesus says the greatest commandment, Matthew 22, 27 through 39. And he said to him, answering a question, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, or with all your soul, with all your mind. That is the great first commandment. Sorry, I started working out of memory more than reading. This is the first and greatest commandment. And second, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. And how am I going to get that done? How are you doing with that? I, I, I'll confess. I'm pretty good. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not. It's tough, right? How am I going to love God first above every other thing if he doesn't help me do that? How am I going to love my neighbor in the same way I love myself if he doesn't help me do that? Matthew 28, 18 through 20, we've already referenced the evangelism thing. And, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. He's sovereign. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am always, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Go make disciples. I, I, I've been at this. You know, we're going to turn 15 in January. This church is going to turn 15. I've been working at this church even not as an employee, for 15 years. 
been doing ministry, seeking to evangelize around the world. I've gone around the world and on, on all but like two continents. I've preached the gospel. Now, I've, it's a lesson I've learned. I can proclaim the word, but I can't make anybody respond to the word. I look at it a lot like uh, procreation and, and having kids. Parents can participate in the process, but they can't actually produce life. I can go out and I can evangelize. We can go. Let's go knock on some doors after church today, right? Let's go obey him and share the gospel. And we can say it, but we can't make anybody listen to it. We can't make anybody trust it. We can't make anybody respond to it. We need God to act, to call and draw those who are going to come to him. We're dependent upon him. In Christ, we live responsibly we can live responsibly independence on the Lord. Prayer, again, this whole idea of prayer. We pray because it, it, it's a confession of our need. It's a confession of our dependence. It's not just an act of obedience, but it's a, a, way, a way for us to, to, to go to him and, and, and admit, I can't do this apart from you. I need you. I depend on you. Evangelism, the whole, whole thing, all of it together is just showing and proving that we are absolutely needy. It's not just about obedience. It is about obedience. But not just about obedience. We demonstrate our dependence as we seek the Lord and seek to make his name known. In Christ, we live, we can live responsibly in trust of the Lord. How many believe, how many of you believe that God is trustworthy? Let's do it. Show of hands. You believe God's trustworthy. Go ahead, raise your hand. Okay, now leave your hands up, leave your hands up. If you trust that the Lord is trustworthy, how many of you struggle with not believing that? Every one of us struggle with unbelief. Every one of us struggle with unbelief. We face moments of doubt. Bottom falls out. The, the, the world comes crashing down around us, and suddenly things aren't as we imagined. We don't have the control we thought we had. Our kids don't measure up to our expectations. Life is difficult. This is when I thought it was going to be easy. This job didn't make me feel as good about myself as I thought it would. Is God still good? Is God still sovereign? Is God still in control? Jesus, John chapter 6, I already referenced this once, but, but it's, just give me, let me give you a passage that helps you see you can still trust him and you still should trust him. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father has given me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me. Praise God for his sovereign faithfulness. If you are his today, you will always be his for all eternity. He will not lose you. Trust that. That I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father. This is the will of God. That everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I, not they, you don't raise yourself up. You don't get up there and say, I made it. Look, God, I'm here. Aren't you glad I'm here? He raises you up on that last day. And there is nothing Nothing, neither life nor death, angels or demons. Nothing in all of creation that can separate you from this love that of God that is in Christ Jesus. This is the Father's will. Trust it. 
We're responsible to trust this. Thank God there's grace for our unbelief, but we are responsible to trust Him. No matter how bad things get, He is always working, and we will always be His. In Christ, we can live responsible, responsibly in union with the Lord. Oh man, there's so many passages I could have drawn from to teach this and to show this, but Jesus praying at the end. He's just finished praying for, at the end of his life, just before his crucifixion. He's praying, he prays for those that are there, right there with him, and, he's, and then he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. God didn't just save us so that we'd be people in a kingdom some distance from him. He's saving us to give us what we lost when Adam and Eve were exiled from Eden. Communion, union, intimate relationship with him. In Christ, the Father in heaven has given, he's given us someone to believe in. He's given us someone to unite us to him in. And through through Jesus, he sovereignly works. He sovereignly works so that we can enjoy and, and, and thrive inside of that relationship, even today. You are his. He is with you. To the end of the age, Jesus said in Matthew 28. When's the end of the age? When he picks you up and puts you with him. Right? Like when he brings us into his physical presence. Everyone in the world is responsible before God. Everyone. But Christian, you and I have been made able. So we must, we must, we must live responsibly. Because as we do, as we do, God is accomplishing his sovereign purposes in the world. So let me just bring this back back down to the very practical thing that I hope it will be for you. Today, you're going to go out and decisions are going to come your way. Some of these are small. Where am I going to eat lunch? What do I need at the store? Some of these are big. Should I sell this house and buy another? Should I marry this person? Should we get divorced? Should I sleep with this other person? Should I? Some of these are big. When you don't know what you're supposed to do, you know what you're responsible to do, right? Every one of us know we're responsible to obey. So we obey. It cuts out so many choices. Do I look at pornography? Nope, nope, I don't. That's disobedience, right? Do I live outside of the design God intends for me? Do I try to be a person that lives apart from it? No, I was created for intimate relationship. I'm responsible to live intimately with him. Do I doubt him? No, I'm responsible to trust. Why would I trust? Because he's trustworthy. I just got to remind myself. When we're at a crossroads, every day we come to these crossroads, sometimes bigger, sometimes littler, always trying to work out his will. His will is for you to live responsibly under his sovereign authority. So do what you're responsible to do. Quit making your life harder than it needs to be. The details he will work out. He will take care of all of that. You do the thing that he's called you and made you responsible to do because he is sovereign. Let's pray.